Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your product or service on this show is part of the Agora Podcast Network, and they specialize in producing intelligent, independent podcasts. Cumulatively, the network has just under 1 million downloads a month so that's a lot of downloads um, you can contact us if you've got a product or a service you would like to hawk by going on to their website which is the agora podcast network.com this podcast is a royfield brown production find others on itunes all right yeah i know in an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday 15, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both. Today we speak to Jonathan Hampton about conducting, singing and the power of the Nego spiritual. Express barely made the American charts when it was released in 1977, but that's the key thing. This piece of music is from the mid-70s. It has had a profound effect on the future of pop music. Critics call it the most important pop album of the last 40 years. This is Trans Europe Express. From the godfathers of modern popular music, Kraftwerk.
Jonathan, I don't know an awful lot about the world of conducting, which is probably the reason why I decided to get you onto Friday 15. Is it true that a conductor is nothing but a waiter? Somebody who, being a waiter is, is obviously a noble profession, but is a conductor just somebody who just makes sure that the listener is delivered to them a good rendition of that piece of music? That's a very interesting question. We get a lot of different interpretations of what a conductor's job is. And uh, it depends who you ask. Well, but I, one I'd of my favorite. Ask you. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite ways of uh, interpreting it uh, one conductor says, Who do you think the audience is here to see? Mm. It's not you guys. They're, they're watching me. That can be a very pompous way of thinking of it. But the, the fact of the matter is that they're listening to the musicians and they're watching the conductor because the conductor is the one that's interpreting with their body all the things that are happening in the room at the time. And so um, from our own perspective, our job is to not just keep people on beat, not just to show the dynamics, you know, the louds and the softs, but to be the embodiment of what the composer wanted and to draw that out of the musicians. So when when you conduct, it's a form of interpretive dance then. Absolutely, yeah. And and some conductors are very physical and some are very just tame with it and rely on the singers or, or the or the instrumentalists to bring bring the energy. Myself, I'm very physical. Uh, I just I'm responsive as a singer to the ebb and flow of the music. And so when I'm conducting, uh, I like to give the same to my musicians. And I take it you have a good stick, sir. <laughs> I do all right. I um, uh, actually, I'm not sure. Not sure what you mean by that. You'll, you'll stick. Do you have a bat on? Because, bat because, on, because yeah. not, not sorry, that was one. That was just one. You know, lost in translation. I just want to make sure. I had <laughs> it right. this, this is a family podcast. I, uh... I wasn't referring to anything else <laughs> other than the, the thing that you wave in front of. That you're yeah, yeah, we, we can edit that. <laughs> No, I, uh, my baton actually has Carnegie Hall's name in, in, on it. It was a gift from my colleagues when I left um, working there in the education department and came out to California to teach full time. And so um, when, I, when I am up on the podium, if I'm using a baton, which is actually pretty rare, uh, I'm using the Carnegie Hall one. You only need it for um, if you're conducting orchestra in a place, I think that it's maybe hard to see or a repertoire that's it's really important for them to be able to clearly see your beat. Otherwise, I'm a big fan of just using open hands and gesturing that way. And, and people are going to follow you and, and they're going to get plenty, plenty from that. Much more, I think, from open hands than just a stick, the point of a stick. But if I was one of the pacific boy choir or the piedmont east boy children's choir i'd want you to have a stick that's what conductors have isn't it <laughs> that's certainly the idea we get from you know the time of we're children watching uh you know bugs bunny up there doing his stick and in the movies and whatnot uh actually in the movies more often than not the folks that are playing conductors have no idea what they're doing it's kind of hilarious really? to watch and musicians are the only ones that seem to, to see that and we get a little chuckle out of it i think if you anytime you pick up a baton a lot of people associate that with these stereotypes of what a conductor is and so they get this sense that oh maybe you've got a, uh, a highfalutin air about you and you're you know you expect to see them in tuxedo and tails and and to be very stern and whatnot and i say put the baton down and and show them you know who you really are by giving them some real gestures you talk about 
the stereotypical view of a conductor because you've broken that stereotype, haven't you? Because you are actually an African American. So you're a black dude, primarily in a white world. Yeah, I, I like to think that um, my folks would be proud that I'm, I'm one of the few doing that.、Um, there are not a whole lot out here, but we do have some some leaders. You know, one of the, the first African American director of a major symphony orchestra was here in the Oakland. Uh, symphony and the person who followed him,、uh, Michael Morgan, is, has been doing it for decades now, and leading. Also, the director of the Oakland Symphony Chorus,、uh, Lemoros, is also African American, and so little by little,、um, people are, are making waves out here in the Bay, but also internationally. But okay, might sound like an incredibly silly question, but this podcast obviously goes out all around the world. Tell me why there aren't more people of color within this specific field of music. Well, the simple answer there is that black people aren't exposed to classical music much, and so, be it financially that they don't have the means to pursue an instrument or to get lessons or to pay for joining a choir or, or an orchestra or a band, and also that the radio stations in our cities aren't playing that music.、Uh, although it's interesting. Uh, in college, I did a study on the influence of classical music and pop culture, and there is so much classical music in the everyday music that we listen to, and a lot of hip hop artists use it、mm. as well. But people don't necessarily realize it. Or you can hum, you know, a few bars of a of a song. You can just go dun 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 dun, and people know all, all that, you know, what that is. And so、uh, it's it's in there somewhere, but we don't we're not used to accessing it, and our culture is, and our society isn't. And, and then there's also the idea Idea that you know it's not cool,、um, it's not our music,、uh, and so why should why should we bother with it? Or people not wanting to be embarrassed about it. But actually, I think it's more impressive to have a, a well-rounded understanding of all music,、um, and especially with a lot of music being based off of the traditions and, and musical forms of classical music. I couldn't agree with you more. And one of the things which I'm very conscious of when I do this show is to make sure that I have a kind of a multiplicity of music. Uh, a lot of diversity of music in terms of the music actually which I choose, but if we were to stick with stereotyping, you know, when it comes to African American culture, I'm presuming that what is classic music in terms of the African American experience and then would be the Negro spiritual. Yeah, if folks are thinking about traditional American folk music, it is the Negro spiritual, and、uh, that is America's. You know, oldest form of、uh, of music, and and is often put into the classical realm、uh, of art songs. So, you know, whenever a vocalist does a recital, be it for graduating from your conservatory program or、uh, on the stage of the Met Opera, those people almost always include, in addition to some classical, some traditional classical repertoire. They'll also do Americana. Portion, and it almost always includes spirituals because they're, you know, they're very vivacious. In some cases, they're very heartfelt and and pull out a lot of emotion in others, and、uh, and it exhibits something that audiences want to hear. And so,、uh, as far as part of the classical music canon in the, in the U.S., yeah, the Negro spiritual definitely has a place there. Just before we come on to every time I feel the spirit, 
how do you feel about the harmonized kind of choral arrangements of kind of modern spirituals are you kind of old school you liked it just when somebody just sang mournfully to invoke that spirit of uh, the hardships of bondage and uh, christian values are you all about keeping it up and up and modern and uh, having kind of those arrangements as well yeah, I prefer traditional. Um, I actually get a little annoyed with some of the choral arrangements that are coming out these days. Um, not a lot of black choirs are, are performing this music. And if they are, they're doing it more in the sense of gospel style that you might hear in church. Mm-hmm. And so they're, you know, they're adding drums and, and, uh, and bass and whatnot. And so some of the arrangements are being done by folks who aren't steeped in this music who didn't grow up hearing this and uh you know hearing their grandmother necessarily hum it you know in the kitchen and and stuff like that and so i feel like um they've gotten the arrangements the call arrangements today have just gotten a bit too sterile and just too cheesy frankly so i prefer just more traditional just the, the holler the way you might imagine having it around a campfire out in the field or outside of the church after the service back when they were doing their own service afterwards so basically so, um, you like yeah. it in your spiritual when you know that the singer can actually is actually feeling that spirit that's what you're telling me absolutely yeah it's got to be authentic it's got to be genuine otherwise it's just them you know putting on an air and so uh, there are certain songs I won't even touch I, I can't get that go down Moses I'm not there yet you know you have to <laughs> been through some plight you have to sing some stuff and I fancy that myself as I haven't seen quite a bit but uh, not enough to be, you know, singing it to the point where you are representing all the people. I, I choose repertoire that I can sing well and that I can connect to. And often it's been something I learned as a young chorister. Just by, you know, evolution, it had to get written down and it had to get formalized a bit in order for it to live on. And so Harry Thacker Burley was one of the first to do that. And, uh, you know, his arrangements were very intricate and very um, centered around the piano accompaniment that went with it. And so they got some grandeur. They got some classical formality added to them. And that was just unnecessary in order for, you know, those collections of songbooks to to make their way out there. But at the same time in my programs, I always try to incorporate uh, coming in and going out acapella. And just something that just rivets the soul, a shout, a holler that really gets people thinking back to the original context of these pieces. Every time I feel the spirit moving in my heart, I will pray. Every time I feel the spirit moving in my heart. I will pray up on the mountain my Lord spoke out of his mouth came fire and smoke Jordan River looks so gold children body but not my soul oh every time I Feel the Spirit moving in my heart, I will pray. Every time I feel the Spirit moving in my heart, I will pray. 
look so shy. Ask me, Lord, if all was mine. Ain't but one train round this track. It runs to heaven and runs right back. Oh, every time I feel the Spirit moving in my heart, I will pray. One of the interesting things about what you just, uh, what you said just before we played, every time I feel the Spirit, was kind of lived experience now i'm not going to say that i met you in a coffee shop so you're just like a latte guy right but (laughs) i met you in a coffee shop and you're a latte guy (laughs) how do you teach um not how do you teach what it was like to be down in savannah georgia circa 1830 if you're picking cotton i'm not going to say that but how can you kind of teach um a young boy a young girl when they're singing to try and evoke uh things in their past which they can then project into their performance yeah well with anything you know sometimes you don't necessarily have something to draw on from experience to to understand something and so you as the teacher have to give the best story and the best understanding you you have to tell through your story in order for them to understand often and so children haven't necessarily seen this plight or can even grasp the gravity of something like slavery or plantation life Um, and so you just talk to them as I talk to them the same as I would an adult and they get it they're responsive they listen they want they they respond to stories right they're going to start to to get it and honestly you know I, I as a child I didn't understand it fully myself and I grew up in it you know in the south side of Chicago and seeing some of this this history and hearing it from my my elders uh, but I still didn't quite grasp it until I was older and so you can't expect them the children to really understand it until later on but when they do figure it out when it clicks for them later on it's gonna it's really gonna click because they're gonna have that context from before that they will have been building off of i try to put them in in that place of that slave that was just singing out and crying out out of desperation to escape that was looking for some connection to someone else on the field or someone in their mind or someone across the seas back in their homeland and people can understand that idea there Explain to me the business of of what you do, because I know that you're incredibly busy. You're here, there, and everywhere. But how exactly do you make a living? Whether it's conducting or being a soloist or kind of teaching. Yeah, it's very. It's a very interesting lifestyle. It's a lot of what you might expect being a freelance musician. Um, you're you're hustling and pulling together a lot of different gigs. And if you're smart about it, if you're professional, if you're you know showing up on time and you're singing well, and when you're teaching, you know you have your lesson plan and you're executing well, and your students are learning and responding, you're going to continue to get hired. And so um, it's a mix: teaching for three different choirs in addition to doing voice lessons. I'm doing my own solo performances and spirituals, but also jazz and soul. And um, in the choral world, you know, singing with organizations like American Box Soloists, Capella SF, San Francisco Symphony Chorus. Everyone has a church gig that you have to have to sort of keep you going, get that weekly, weekly pay. Uh, and so for me, that's singing at uh, the Cathedral of Christ Light in Oakland. 
Uh, there's a lot of work. I mean, there's church services every day. And so you can you can fill the entire week um, with even just that. But uh, that's not, not going to be as engaging musically for me uh, as also having some concert choirs to sing with and perform with some, you know, chamber orchestras doing some pocket opera or maybe a musical here and there, you know, fulfilling my, my love of R&B and soul and jazz. Uh, that I came up on um, by doing some some solo gigs with you know guitar or keyboard. Just before we start to wrap up, I know that you are very busy uh, with the American Bach soloists, but I'm presuming, I'm assuming, I'm hoping that when you do your Bach soloist work, that you do don that white powdered wig and you are completely and utterly in in character, sir. Please tell me that is the case. You know, I try to bring my true self to whatever style of music I'm performing or teaching. So and you're so, not wearing stockings and breeches. That <laughs> That's never going to happen. You know, I will wear uh, <laughs> tails and I will, you know, I will put on the tuxedo. You know, I feel like it's uplifting my identity as a gentleman and as a scholar and as a professional musician. And, you know, backstage, I'm talking in the same accent I got from Southside Chicago. And on stage, I'm going to be singing in Latin or in German, and I'm going to have that accent. It doesn't mean that I'm any less of, of the man that I am uh, out on the streets or at home. That's one of the most important things about this industry where uh, it's predominantly white. I'm often the only black person on stage. I have to represent for who I am and who my people are and who I want my people to be. You know, I want to look out into the audience and see black faces. I want them to understand the power and passion of this music in the way that I do. And it opens up so much in dialogue and people don't understand the, the value that digging deep into something you, you love and are good at uh, can do, no matter you know what stereotypes or what you think that your culture will or will not accept. So I'm out to I'm out to change that idea of what is appropriate, what is acceptable, what is black, what is American music. Jonathan Hampton, thank you for coming on to Friday Fifteen and demonstrating that a black man waving a stick can be a beautiful, inspiring, and creative thing. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here in the bathroom is a single by Bridgie Scar Band, The Beat. It was released as a single in 1980 from the debut album I Just Can't Stop It. It reached number four in the UK singles chart and was subsequently their highest UK charting. Reflection to my own 
take you to a restaurant that's got glass tables You can watch yourself while you are eating Emmanuel Brown died in July 1999. He was a Jamaican reggae singer. In the island of Jamaica was significantly more popular than even Bob Marley. Over his career he recorded more than 75 albums. How Could I Leave was a version of the Sharks Rocksteady standard How Could I Leave You. It was released in 1977.
Hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget, you can follow the show's progress on Facebook by simply typing in Friday15. You can also find us on Twitter, where you can follow me, around at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-Z. Now, every Thursday, you can jump onto Twitter and tweet me and nominate a song for me to put into this week's Friday 15 iTunes reviews, folks, are extremely important. They're the lifeblood of any podcast. Please go onto iTunes and write us a, a glowing review. And don't forget, finally, you can email me where I'm Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. See you all again in seven days' time for more good music and great conversation. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.